Thank you so much, uh, Richard. And it really is, for so many reasons, wonderful uh, to be back with you here uh, in Belfast. And uh, I do remember that weekend back in 2020. Boy, I remember arriving at uh, Edinburgh Airport and uh, seeing some people with masks and thinking it's a bit over the top, is it not? <laughs> Little did we know what was uh, going to lie in wait for us, but God is good and he has brought us to this point and to him uh, we give thanks and praise. I also bring you uh, the greetings of uh, the believers at uh, Central Baptist in Dundee. They're at the heart of Dundee, serving Jesus just as you at the heart of Belfast are doing the same. We are one in Christ. I would invite you now to take up your Bible and turn uh, to Luke chapter 16. And we're looking at uh, that last parable there in chapter 16 and then just very quickly into uh, verse, chapter 17 uh, as well. So Luke chapter 16 beginning our reading at verse 19. Luke 16 verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple, said Jesus, and fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abram's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abram far off, and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime you received good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish and besides all this between us and you a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to there may not be able none may cross from there to us and he said then I beg you father to send him to my father's house for I have five brothers so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. He said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him to have a millstone hung around his neck and be cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. And the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping 
sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterwards you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what is our duty. Salvador Dali was a famous, I think you would call him surrealist artist, based finally in Barcelona. And he was a very, very strange character. The thing about Salvador Dali was, he loved money. And he had lots of it. And he loved not only money, he loved to keep his money. But every now and again, he would take his friends out for a meal, a lavish meal. And when it came to the end of the meal, he would take out his checkbook and he would write a check for the full sum covering the meal. But then, this is what he would do. He would turn the check over and doodle on the back of it. Very clever. So the proprietor of the restaurant was left with a conundrum. Does he cash the check or keep a Salvador Dali original? If you're thinking about doing that at McDonald's later on, I would advise you not to. It doesn't work. It's not very generous, is it? The generous thing would have been to have covered the costs of the meal and given a doodle. But you see, that very act revealed his heart, and I'm sure there was many a Russian tour in Barcelona who, who winced when they heard the words, table for Dali, because they knew what was coming. And in this parable of Jesus, there is in the background a group of men who were called Pharisees. And it's significant that we're told in verse 14 of this chapter that the Pharisees loved money. They loved their fine flowing robes and their flummery. They loved money. That's the background to what is being said here by the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus says previously, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And the Pharisees, verse 14, who loved money, heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. They were sneering at Jesus. Did they think that Jesus was a loser because he looked poor? What a mistake on the part of the Pharisees to make. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight, said Jesus. True faith was not their focus. Finance was. Flummery, fancy robes, 
and all that goes with it. And so what the Lord Jesus Christ does here for these men and for us too is, is really what he does so superbly. He holds up a mirror. He holds up a mirror that they might see themselves for what they are. Life, Jesus sets this scene of extremes of wealth and poverty. The Pharisees assuming God's favor in the wealth and his disfavor in the poverty of Lazarus. And then there's death, verses 22 to 26, and this dramatic reversal. A reversal that would have scandalized the Pharisees because you understand they would have seen the rich man as being living under the divine favor and Lazarus under divine curse. But when life turns to death, there is this reversal, and the Pharisees would have been absolutely shocked at the picture that Jesus presents. And then verses 27 to 31, followed by the reflection of chapter 17, 1 to 10. And the lesson is that man's earthly condition is no index to his state in the sight of God. That the true response of faith is not an outward ritual, but an inward reality. What is the evidence of this reality? It is a true response of faith towards God. Practically in what we do, stemming from what we know of God and the revelation he has brought. Jesus says to them at the end of this parable, they have Moses and the prophets, and those Moses and Moses and the prophets are the ones who point unerringly to the one who stands in their company that day. It's about Jesus. Is this rich man condemned because of his riches? No. The Bible is chock full of godly rich men. Abraham, Joseph of Arimathea. But the rich man's impulses reveal what? They reveal the disposition of his heart. Is Lazarus saved because he was poor? No. The Bible never teaches a particular virtue in poverty. Certainly not saving power. Salvation is by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. It was the disposition of the heart of Lazarus towards God that counted. And in this deliberately extreme illustration presented by Jesus, the choices of both men made on earth are related to the experience or not of eternal reward. Jesus refers to rewards multiple times in the New Testament. Matthew 5, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. So does the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians 5.10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And this is what is being described here. What is being revealed is the disposition of the heart of the rich man and the disposition of the heart of Lazarus. I say again, because it's so important, in that culture, people looking at that rich man would think him blessed of God. Looking at Lazarus, they would think him cursed of God. And the context of this, is, of course, is Jesus sparring with the Pharisees who were obsessed with the outwards. And Jesus teaches that what makes a man unclean is not external, but the inward sinful reality. 
that what matters is the matter of the heart. Whatever the circumstances, whether in riches or in poverty, that it is possible to have the outward indicators of blessing and be an empty spiritual shell. It is also possible to have nothing, nothing that this world values, and yet by faith to gain everything. Jesus is pressing his listeners to consider the issues of, a heart, of the heart. What a teacher Jesus is, isn't he? What a way he has of, of clarifying the circumstances that he saw and that we know so well. Jesus' parables are little, like little time bombs in our brains. He just plants his truth there and it goes off and transforms our view from a worldly view to a godly one. What a teacher he is. First of all, then life, verses 19 to 22. Let's scan those verses together as we go through them. Verse 19, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. Now, this by any stretch is ostentatious living. The very mention of purple tells you that this man was absolutely loaded. He was absolutely loaded. Now, in verse 20, at his gate was a, laid a beggar named Lazarus covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. So Jesus introduces this picture of extremes, of polarization. We have one man who is wrapped up in rags, and we have another man who is wrapped up in himself. One man living in an opulent lifestyle at Party Central, and another in utter degradation. We are not told or given any hint that the rich man's riches were ill-gotten, or that the state of Lazarus was self-inflicted. We're not given any of these details, because this is not the issue. We're simply told that these are the circumstances that both of these men find themselves in. And the lesson in this parable is for all, but in particular, for the sneering Pharisees looking in. The mention of the details of the suffering of Lazarus would have horrified a lot of the Pharisees because of their focus upon uh, externalism. <laughs> If any group tended to draw a straight line between this description of suffering and God's disfavor, it would be them. Because they would see Lazarus not only as being under the disfavor of God, but they would also see him as being ceremonially unclean because of the dogs and his circumstances. He's unfit for worship of the living God as far as they're concerned. But Jesus paints this picture in the way that he does so as to, to smoke out this thinking and challenging it, challenge it. Not all is as it seems. And he's bringing those Pharisees to the point where they'll have to rethink their assumptions. Now, what ought to be obvious is that both men were aware of each other. 
the rich man knowing of his guest at the gate, yet impervious to him, utterly impervious to the need of this man at his very gate. This rich man is living like there is no tomorrow, and he lives like there is no tomorrow until there is no tomorrow for him. Lazarus is living dependently, day to day, literally gone to the dogs. What could be lower? Bearing that gnawing hunger, made worse, of course, by the aroma of the food coming from the kitchen of the wealthy man. You know what it's like when you're hungry and you're downtown and someone passes you with a poke of chips? There's nothing worse, is there? You say, oh, I take that to the power 10. And that is what is being conveyed here. Utter desolation of this poor man. And then he finally expires. Now, I know that passages like this can be guilt-inducing for us because most of us are relatively wealthy in these days. And I'm sure you're feeling it in Belfast as well. We certainly are in Dundee. The increase in poverty and real need that we face. And we cannot meet every need. We cannot meet every need. But as those who have experienced the lavish grace of God, we can respond with kindness. We can do what we can. In the words of that great theologian, Phil Collins, think once, think twice. Just another day for you and me in paradise. God has blessed us for a reason, that we bless others. God has blessed us for a reason that we show the generosity of Christ with wisdom in our culture. We can't do everything, but we can do something. And that's what makes this rich man's imperviousness to need really shocking, but not only really shocking, but really revealing. He's just into himself, and he just doesn't care. James 2 says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? We love, we listen, and we help where we can. And it may be the downtown derelict or that old woman across the road who feels empty and valueless and anonymous, whose care might just be the very thing she needs from you. Those who have experienced the love of Christ will find expression for the love of Christ in reflecting God's grace. Well, this was life for Lazarus. This was life for this wealthy man. And then we're told, look at verses 22 to 26, death came. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abram's side. Now, right away, those Pharisees listening are thinking, wait a minute, angelic transport for this man. The angels carry him to Abram's side. The rich man also died and was buried 
And so sitting alongside us in Scripture, we have the Lord Jesus Christ putting this utter honor afforded to Lazarus, being taken by the angels to Abraham's side, and we're told, we don't even know the rich man's name. All we're told is that he died, he was buried. Verse 23, in Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and kill my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. For the rich man, the party's over. It's time to call it a day. And secondly, if the earthly scene is extreme, the heavenly scene is more so. Again, listening in the background are these sneering Pharisees, the sneering religious elite. And the power of this post-mortem reversal would have shocked them. Surely they would think to themselves, it is the rich man who has to be in the bosom of Abraham. Jesus, just such an amazing teacher, just the best. Especially jarring detail for the Pharisees would have been the thought of Lazarus in Abraham's bosom. And they ask, what's, that? what's Lazarus doing there? Well, who is Lazarus with? He's with Abram, of course. Abraham was commended for what? Abram was commended for believing God's word, which was reckoned to him as righteousness, Genesis chapter 15. Abraham, I know you're childless, but look at the stars in the sky. So shall your offspring be. And Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. It was salvation by faith in the word of God. Abraham believed the word of God. Lazarus is therefore portrayed not as some kind of deserving poor, but as a believing son of Abraham. That's the point of this detail. And this, of course, would stick in the throats of the Pharisees. They would not like this one little bit. Yeah, I was like, as I was thinking about this, I thought, how precious must the understanding of a passage like this be to believers in North Korea this morning or in parts of China or in parts of Sudan and other Islamic countries? How precious to them to know that their security ultimately and eternally is through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. How precious. How precious this passage for them and for believers in any number of parts of our world this morning. Jesus, the master teacher, is making something very clear to those who believe that circumstances notwithstanding, the best is yet to be for the believer. Do you believe that? Maybe you're facing all kinds of difficulties and pain in your life just now. If you're trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, the one to whom Moses and the prophets point, the best is yet to be. And just as that picture is extreme that we're given here, so is the other one. The rich man also died and was buried. 
And in Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. Again, the Pharisees would have been scandalized by this teaching. The rich man in Hades? Really? This is getting too close to home because many of them were wealthy because they played on the people and exploited the widows. This is getting too close for comfort. But Jesus, the most loving man who has ever lived, believed in hell, a place of punishment. And this entitled rich man has still not got it. Father Abraham, would you just send Lazarus? What a sense of entitlement. But Abraham replied with gentle words, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between you and us, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. Fixed, conscious, eternal punishment. So that's the life, that's the death. And then lastly, the lesson. He answered, then I beg you, Father, Send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. And Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets, let them listen to them. And no, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone goes from the dead to them, they will repent. And he said to them, if they do not, do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. So try many times have you met someone and they've said, well, I don't believe in God, but I believe in God if he would do something spectacular now. No, they wouldn't. No, they wouldn't. There was another Lazarus, wasn't there? The friend of Jesus. Jesus went to Bethany and he said, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus did from the grave. And what did the Pharisees do? They plotted to kill Jesus and Lazarus. It is not supernatural shows that are needed. It is a heeding of the scriptures by faith. When Jesus rose, the unbelieving authorities sought a cover-up. The Holy Spirit works through the inspired Scriptures. And it's so poignant that as Abraham says, they ought to listen to Moses and the prophets, that a greater than Moses stands among the crowd that day. The one who stands there is the one to whom Moses and the prophets point the one who is the focus of all of the scriptures, the seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head, the prophet like Moses, Deuteronomy 18, who would lead a greater exodus. 
He is the Isaiah 53 suffering servant who would suffer, bear the sin of his people, and live again. He is that wonderful figure in Daniel 7. In my vision at night, said Daniel, I looked, and there before me was a son of man coming in the clouds, signifying divinity of heaven. The one to whom is given those things only appropriate to God in Daniel 7, worship and sovereign power, that very one stands in the crowd that day. Jesus holds up a mirror for the Pharisees and for all of us. And he calls us to consider the issue of our hearts. No, the riches of this man did not signify divine favor. Nor did the poverty of Lazarus signify divine disfavor. And that is seen in the dramatic reversal. The rich man in torment and Lazarus comforted. A scene that would have scandalized the Pharisees. The true response of faith is not an outward ritual, but an inward reality. That issues in outward kindness. A looking to the Word of God, to Moses and the prophets that point forward to Jesus. And that just brings us very quickly to chapter 17, 1 to 10, just very quickly. Because a passage like this leaves us with questions, doesn't it? And in verses 1 to 4, Jesus issues a reality and a warning. He's saying to his disciples, sin sucks you in. Temptations to sin are sure to come. But woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for a millstone to be hung around his neck and he be cast into the sea, lest he cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourself, said Jesus. What is your thinking? And then there's a reminder that God has set us not only in the context of, of earthly families, but in the context of the family of God. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. We are to care for one another within the flock of God. If, if you're, can I say this gently to you, if you're one of those people who's a kind of church hopper, peripheral, you need to be very careful. You need a community of believers of which you can be a part and be accountable to. Pay attention to yourself, says Jesus. And then in 5 to 6, there's a response. The disciples feel their lack in the light of what Jesus has said. And, and it's a good sign because they're quickened in their spirits and they're saying, we don't want to be like that, Jesus. Increase our faith. Increase our faith. They don't want to be indifferent like the rich man. You see, the secret of faith, though, is not its size, but its object. And the genuineness of that faith. And then verses 7 to 10, a reminder that the Lord Jesus Christ 
is the Lord. He is the master. Will any of one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him, when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? You see what he's doing there? He's saying, in the context where there were slaves, and that's a whole different story for us that we could talk about another day. But there's something odd there if you go into your office and start bossing your boss, isn't there? You wouldn't last very long, would you? And Jesus is making the point that he is Lord, and we are his servants. That God owes us nothing, and we are at best servants of Jesus Christ. And that is the way things are. And yet, at the same time, we serve a Savior who served us in giving his life as a ransom on the cross for us. Who would, who would not want to serve a master like that? What a teacher Jesus is. He shines a light on the temporal nature of life and the importance of what we do with it. And he takes us to the source of actions, which is the disposition of the heart. Towards self or towards God? That's the question. Is it time for some of us to get on our knees before the Lord? And say to him, Lord, melt our hearts, melt my heart. Make me responsive to your word afresh. Remove the barnacles that have attached themselves to the hull of my life. This teaching, I know, is challenging. And for some of us, it's guilt-inducing. <laughs> Does my life really speak of Christ in the way that it should? Does my life really speak of Christ in profession and in practice? We know that salvation is not based on what we do but on what Christ has done in his living righteously so that his righteousness can be put to our account. In his dying atoningly so that we find forgiveness that is full and free and in rising gloriously over sin and death. But what we do is to be a response to that grace of God in Christ. Maybe this morning you're doubting yourself. Well, maybe, maybe, just maybe, that shortened gospel message that I've just given you is the message you need to hear. Maybe you've not come to the Lord Jesus Christ and you've not owned him as Savior and Lord of your life. Well, you need to recognize that he is the one you need. He lived righteously because you couldn't. He died atoningly because none of us could be a perfect sacrifice. God had to come over to our side to do for us what we could not do for ourselves, and that's what Jesus did. And then to rise and to conquer the last lurking enemy of every one of us, and that is death. Maybe that's what you need to do this morning. You need to say, Lord Jesus, I need you. I repent of my sin, and I turn to you in faith this day. 
or maybe you're like the rest of us who are trying but sometimes failing. Listen, if you're quickened in your heart like those disciples, that's a good sign. That's a good sign. I've been a pastor for 25, 26 years now. And I can tell you this, that unbelievers tend not to agonize over such questions. So the existence of a response this morning in your heart is a good sign. Let me ask you some diagnostic questions. Do you love the Lord a lot? Most of us would say, it's a bit of a stretch, Jim. Do you love the Lord a little? How often, sometimes, I, comparatively, as in terms of what I should know, but in the reality, it, yeah, sometimes. I, do you love him consistently? Well, sometimes our love ebbs and flows, doesn't it? Let me ask you, maybe you're down on your knees just now and you're saying, where, where, where am I? Let me ask you, do you love the Lord at all? And almost, well, every believer will say, oh yeah. I don't love him with all my heart all the time. I love him inconsistently, inconsistently, but I, I, do, I do when it comes to, I do, I do love him. Let me tell you, it is impossible. It is impossible for the unregenerate person to love the biblical Jesus at all. And so circumstances notwithstanding, Circumstances notwithstanding, go love him. Go serve him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you and bless you for the gift of our Lord Jesus Christ, for all that he has done for us. Father, may our lives reflect his amazing grace. And may the impact be seen in others being drawn to him. For his glory we pray. Amen.